Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's a weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulta. I'm a professor, I'm a podcast host, and someone who's extremely grateful to be seated at the front seat of molecular biology and as it becomes part of everyday life with the COVID vaccines and so many important discussions. It's really fun to hear people talk about mRNA in a restaurant or a bar and think that's the stuff I do all the time. <laughs> so it's a, it's a very different time and I'm glad the podcast is going into its seventh year to help usher that along. So today's talk is a really important one because it talks about how genes move in populations from one lineage to another. And this is important in shaping evolution and adaptation and providing new traits to different species in a way that we previously didn't think happened very often. I was a guest on the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe back in, I don't know, 2000 and maybe, I don't know, 2010, 2008, maybe, a um, long time ago, where I basically said horizontal gene transfer was something that didn't happen hardly ever. And it turns out, 13 years later, there are people who are showing that I was horribly wrong. Our guest today is one of those folks, is Dr. Luke Dunning, and he's an independent research fellow in the Department of Animal and Plant Sciences at the University at the University of Sheffield in the UK. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Dunning. Hi, Kevin. Thank you very much for, for having me on. Yeah, thank you. And uh, and congratulations on everything. I mean, you've it seems like you've got you got a great paper out in New Phytologist, which is a great journal. You uh, recently were uh, uh, an award winner of the Stebbins Prize, which is no small feat, which is fantastic. Stebbins was one of the uh, scientists that talked a lot about polyploidy implants. And, uh, and uh, you're uh, recently uh, promoted into a faculty position or at least a research leader position at Sheffield. So, you know, um, congratulations on everything and welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, I mean, uh, academically and career-wise, it's been great if you just ignore the COVID and everything else. <laughs> yeah, but that's a bump in the road. You know, I think a lot of the um, a, a lot of us are using COVID as an opportunity to kind of rebrand ourselves and maybe shake the snow globe a little bit and see if it settles in a different way on the other side. And I'm thinking of so many things that are going to be different when we get back. And it taught me how to teach over um camera <laughs> that was fun but uh, let's talk about lateral gene transfer now you know um you in your paper and in your discussions you discuss it as lateral gene transfer i've always called it horizontal gene transfer is there really a difference and maybe just for the audience what is lateral gene transfer so when we talk about lateral gene transfer we're talking about the movement of genetic material between organisms by means other than reproduction so reproduction would be vertical transmission. 
and we're talking about lateral or horizontal. And, and in my mind, they are synonymous. Some people use lateral, some people use horizontal, but they're effectively uh, equivalent. Okay, so and then when this happens, this is really uh, not necessarily confined to closely compatible species. Like we've seen examples of um, agrobacterium, you know, is a great example showing up in things like sweet potatoes or different insect genes showing up in different crops. But is there a general rule about how this happens? Is it generally the closer and more related you are, the more likely it is to happen? So obviously there's more lateral gene transfer in prokaryotes, so bacteria and archaea. And so a lot of the, our understanding really comes from there. And they see that you're more likely to acquire genes for more closely related um, species because you can, um, it aids homologous recombination and sort of retention of the, of the genes. In the grasses, so the work that we were doing, we actually see a similar pattern. For a different reason, it's not to do with the homologous recombination, but we still have that signal of you get more genes from, from closely related grasses. And this probably reflects the fact that the genes that we see are those which are retained, and you've got to be able to use those. So potentially they have similar regulatory mechanisms, something which makes it more likely that you'll retain um, genes from the closely related species. Yeah, that's a really good point. I, I didn't even think about it, but things like Haemophilus and uh, Streptococcus mutans, these things make a living by taking up foreign DNA and integrating it and acquiring new traits from it. So I guess we're kind of uh, looking at the plant world's extension of the same process. But how do you find the evidence of lateral gene transfer? Are you just going through massive inventories of public data and, and seeing where something doesn't fit? Or how, how do you discover this? Initially, a lot of this work really comes from sort of anecdotal examples. So people will be looking into, you know, one trait or one gene of interest, and they'll build phylogenetic trees. So like sort of a family tree of that, of that gene, and there'll be something which is not quite right their species will be sitting in a different clade or something. So a lot of the work in grasses actually came out from earlier work where they were looking at uh, different photosynthetic enzymes and they were building these trees and then finding actually certain species. So Allotropsis, one of the species I work on quite a lot, had photosynthetic genes from, from really distant related grasses. So then in 2019, we sequenced and assembled the genome of this species to actually get a handle of, hang on, how much lateral gene transfer is going on in a whole in this species. And we found it was, I think it was 50 genes or so. And they were coming as quite large fragments, so multi-gene fragments being passed between species. And then this last um, project's a continuation of that, where we've actually gone into the public databases, used multiple genomes for multiple species. So I think it's about 19 grasses we used. And we actually start to ask how widespread is this across the family as a whole and we find it happens in 13 out of the 17 species so it's it's really a progression from um sort of an incidental discovery right through to using the resources available to actually see how widespread this pattern is yeah you make me want to revisit some old data that i have i think back in 2010 when we sequenced a strawberry genome this was you know one of the first plant genomes that was completed we found all kinds of evidence of things like thrips and um, uh, verticillium and all these common pests and pathogens of strawberry. And all of that stuff got filtered out and everybody threw it in the garbage can and said, don't look at it. And I said, that's totally cool stuff because it tells us kind of a metagenomic analysis of who's populating a strawberry plant. 
but I didn't look at if it was integrated in the genome. You know, we just assumed it was contamination. So how do you know that the sequences you're finding that don't exactly belong aren't just, um, you know, some sort of contamination from some pollen or, or something that came along with the DNA prep from the organism you were looking at? So completely contamination is one of the first things you have to rule out. So the rule contamination is one of the first things you have to rule out. And there are some unfortunate examples, uh, which has led to a lot of the skepticism that people see in, in these lateral gene transfer studies. So one of them is called the tardigrade. So they sequence the genome of the tardigrade, which is this um, micro animal, really. And it's mm -hmm. um, able to survive in all sorts of extreme environments. I think they've even exposed it to, to outer space and, and, and it's able to survive. And they linked a lot of that um, survivability, for, you, for, for want of a better word, to laterally acquired genes. And these were from all sorts of you know, fungi, bacteria and things like that. And then eventually that paper, some people reanalyzed and found, yes, a lot of this was contamination. And so it was sort of written off. And so contamination is the, the, the number one thing that we worry about. In this, and, and to rule it out, we mainly use multiple data sets generated by different labs in um, across the world. So working, you know, on, for example, in maize, lots of people sequence maize. And so we can use all these data sets and verify that the gene is present in these multiple accessions. So it's very unlikely that contamination would be in, in everyone's data. We also can do things like use long read sequencing. So we can actually verify that a single piece of DNA that we sequence jumps between the sort of vertical sort of ancestral DNA and, and into the laterally acquired part of the genome. So we can see that this, yes, it's not a, it has been incorporated into the genome itself. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Is anybody doing the kind of wet lab version of that work where you're going back and actually uh, amplifying and sequencing the borders of the misplaced genes? So at the moment, no. So the idea would be one of the greatest things is to find the, the edge of these fragments and you know, that will help you track down the mechanism potentially. But what we see in the genomes is really the relic of this initial transfer because recombination and things will have eroded the ends of these fragments. So actually we're not seeing the, the sort of original junction, but exactly that's the kind of thing which would be fantastic to see in, in really recent transfers. And, and actually, you know, you might find a signal of, um, a, of a viral vector or something like that. So that would be really cool work to do in, in some of the more recent transfers. Yeah, and you mentioned the skepticism. I imagine that when your paper went in for review that it had a lot of folks scratching their heads and saying, well, I have another interpretation and had some maybe mundane explanations for why you would find other sequences in a given grass background and, you know, other than contamination. So what are, what are some of those other uh, potential explanations and maybe things that you've heard about from reviewers? <laughs> so, well, yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's sort of this progression that you see every time I discuss, discuss it with people. It's always contamination first, you know, like, okay, we've ruled out contamination. And then you start to talk about, yes, these other hypotheses, which can give you similar patterns. And so one of the most simple thing people are like, uh, mention is, are you sure you're comparing the same genes between species? So if you've got the right orthologs, so we account for that using syntony, so the position where the genes are in the genome. Other things 
or evolutionary processes which can can drive things to look more similar is convergent evolution. So if you were to imagine a, a phylogeny of the mammals, you would put all the aquatic mammals together in one close clade, but they're actually independent origins. So you can have similar things at the molecular level. And so we try and rule out convergent evolution by using uh, portions of the gene which aren't subject to selection and also looking at non-coding DNA so you wouldn't see those patterns. So you, there's lots of little things such as incomplete linear sorting again, which is sort of um, segregation of ancestral variation, which can cause um, things to look more similar than you expect. But we know about all of these and we take great care ruling out these alternative hypotheses. Lateral gene transfers, not our primary assumption. It, it's, it's what we conclude after we rule out every alternative explanation. And lateral gene transfer has been uh, implicated in the idea of, uh, of of giving new function, you know, of giving like that the lateral gene that moves or the DNA that moves provides the recipient with some sort of elevated function in frequent cases. And what kind of examples or evidence of adaptation do you see based upon these lateral gene transfers? So one of the most obvious thing that we see is functional replacement. So particularly in the photosynthetic genes. So these genes are acquired, but they, they don't replace your vertical copy in the genome. They're inserted somewhere else. So you end up with the ancestral vertical copy and the laterally acquired gene coexisting. And what we see in the, phylo, um, in the photosynthetic genes is that the one which is acquired will re completely replace the function of the native one and that becomes pseudogenized. And this is where we talk about lateral gene transfer speeding up evolution. So in the case of the photosynthetic genes, the one which has been acquired is generally from a species which has been C4, using the C4 photosynthetic pathway for longer. So this is a modification which increases its efficiency in high temperature and dry environments. And it passes it to a species which is relatively recently evolved a trait. And so generally when you evolve this, you then have to modify your enzyme to be efficient in C4 photosynthesis, which takes time. It's an iterative process. So by borrowing one which has already been optimized and had these amino acid replacements, these species are effectively um, fast forwarding evolution. So that's where it really speeds up. But the other side you sort of mentioned is potentially opening up new functions, um, which wouldn't have been, um, let me just pause, <coughs> new functions, which wouldn't have been available to the species. So it's not just a matter of saving time, it's actually allowing new niches to be explored. And so we don't actually have evidence for that in the grasses yet, with something we're looking at with um, genetic manipulations, but it is happening in other species. For example, there are red algae, which can exploit living in, in extremely harsh environments, and they've acquired this ability because they have detoxification enzymes, which they have acquired from, from bacteria. And ferns, for example. So ferns can grow in low light environments thanks to a, a neochrome gene, uh, a photoreceptor that they acquired from bryophytes. So yes, it, it, it can speed up evolution, but it also can open up new avenues of adaptation. It was, um, you know, you mentioned neochrome. Was that an example of lateral gene transfer, do you think? Or was that maybe just uh, shuffling of the resident genes that were already there? So that should, well, 
so in that case, it was a pass from mosses and liverworts to ferns. And so the, in, in the mosses and liverworts, they shuffled and reorganized and then generated this chimeric photoreceptor. And then that was passed to the passed to the ferns. Yeah, I'll have to have a guest on about neochrome. I, that's one of the really cool. Well, I've studied photomorphogenesis for years. So that's uh, something I think is so cool. You mentioned another word in the last part, uh, sud sudogenized. <laughs> yes, <that's right. laughs> and, 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 and I like when we take words and make them into other words. But could you explain for the audience what uh, pseudogenized means? Yes, certainly. So effectively, that's when a gene is no longer used. So it, it, they turn it off. It mutates away and becomes non-functional. So you pseudogenize a gene. Yeah. So it turns into a pseudogene. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so pseudogenize, you made it into a verb. <laughs> yeah. well, well that's great well we're, we're talking to dr luke donning he's a uh, independent research fellow in, at the university of sheffield and we're talking about his recent paper which discusses lateral gene transfer in grasses this is the talking biotech podcast and we'll be back in just a moment The average life of podcasts is 12 episodes, but the Talking Biotech Podcast continues to go strong into 300 episodes, and it's seven years. With between five and 10,000 downloads a week, this podcast is now approaching 1.5 million downloads. Thanks for that. Now, despite the efforts of activists, some folks in SciComm, and a certain university trying to pull the plug, this educational exercise surges forward into what promises to be the most exciting period for biotechnology. Biotech tools will have ended a pandemic, cured sickle cell disease, and offered new inroads in fighting cancer and neurodegenerative disease. We'll see crop solutions that aid sustainability and new discoveries that we can't even imagine now. Back when the podcast started, CRISPR was just a drawer in the refrigerator. So thank you for listening and sharing the podcast in your social media networks. There's a lot of excellent podcasts out there, and the fact that this pirate ship continues to sail with a larger audience is something we're truly grateful for. So thank you. The best times are yet to come, and count on the Talking Biotech podcast to help inform and clarify, so that you can better share the beautiful science that will shape the future of medicine, agriculture, and conservation. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Luke Dunning. He's an independent research fellow at the University of Sheffield. And recently, he had a paper come out in the New Phytologist, which is a really good plant biology journal. It's one of the, uh, it's got its niche. It's a really uh, decent journal. And, and the uh, paper just came out in April of 2021. And it talks about something that we've detected for a long time in plants, and that is the presence of other genes which are coming from lateral gene transfers. Uh, just he's looked at it in great depth and has really characterized a significant body of evidence that indicates this is something very common in grasses and something that is lending new function to different lineages of grasses. So tell me about the paper. Was it really, it really was just a strict computational 
uh, comparison. I know, I know we talked about this before, but um, how many different databases did you interrogate to be able to develop this uh, final conclusion? So you, yes, it, it basically was all computational. And we used several databases from NCBI, GenBank, to Phytosome, to Ensemble, Green Plants. And we take that along with a lot of non-genome, whole genome data. We take that along with a lot of transcriptome data, a lot of genome skimming. So all sorts of data sets we can sort of um, put together. And so the idea is we use the high quality genomes to perform the initial interrogations. And then when we have some decent candidates, we build the most fleshed out phylogenies we can. So we, we resolve the history of the gene with as many species um, at once. And so this is using all sorts of data. And this allows us to include, I think it's almost 150 or 160 species of grass. So we can actually get a, a, a well-defined picture of that gene's evolution. And we talked about this a little bit in the beginning, but when you look at the grasses, do you see patterns of successful lateral gene transfer, meaning like between closer related species, maybe sharing more evidence of transfer? Yes. So I think the idea is, well, my idea is really that lateral gene transfer is ongoing. It's probably go, occurring at a much higher rate than we see. And what we see is the tip of the iceberg. So we see those which have been retained, those which are useful, those which um, haven't been selected against, because you can imagine just inserting a piece of your DNA. Um, you can imagine just inserting a piece of DNA into a genome can cause all sorts of problems. So the ones that we see are the ones which are retained and it's more likely, well, what we see the signal that it's more likely that you retain them from your close relatives, which might reflect utility. So it might be because you can use them more easily. There is a potential confounding factor of biogeography. So where plants grow. So you're probably more likely to grow in similar areas to your close relatives. So maybe opportunity for the transfer in the first place also plays a role. But this is something we're going to try and dissect um, with future research to see how much of it is about opportunity and how much of it is about utility. Okay, I see. That, that makes sense. But here's the part that doesn't make sense to me. You've got DNA in the nucleus of a, of a plant, and you say this is, by definition, non- sexual sharing of a gene, how the heck do you get it from the nucleus of one grass successfully integrated into the nucleus of another grass? Uh, I mean, how does it happen? <laughs> I mean, I mean, this is the million dollar question that everyone wants to know. So there's, there's a few hypotheses, really, and, and most of them involve direct contact. And so, for example, we know that the, the parasitic plants acquire DNA because they have a hostoria which fuses with their host tissue and, and this direct contact DNA can move across this boundary, almost like a graft. In the grasses, we're not entirely sure. We know it incurs in all different types of grasses with different types of traits. So this might speak to it's something to do with illegitimate pollination. So it's not quite hybridization. It's not your sort of typical view of lateral gene transfer, but is this breakdown of reproductive isolation. So you'll still get pollen from species A landing on species B, and a, a pollen tube might grow, but only a little bit of DNA is included. It's not classic hybridization, because we can rule that out from our data. We know that homologous recombination isn't involved with the acquisition of these genes. The other interesting thing that we see in the, in the data is that you get more lateral gene transfer in species which have rhizomes. 
So rhizomes are modified roots and they allow the plants to asexually reproduce. So if you can introduce DNA into that, when the plant regenerates, it's, it's automatically into the germline. And so potentially underground where everything's quite cramped, you, you get maybe natural grafts forming and DNA can move across these boundaries. And so that's, it really fits quite nicely with a paper which came out this year looking at um, grafts between tobacco plants. And they showed that across these grafts, you get the movement of chloroplasts and nuclear DNA. So potentially once you're, you're in that close proximity, it actually flows more easily than you would expect. Yeah, it actually makes a lot of sense because if you're a plant that is mostly reproducing by asexual means, um, either by, you know, rhizomes or, you know, uh, stolons or whatever, you're now limiting your genetic diversity that you're able to do through because you're not sexually reproducing in many cases. And so this really gives you the opportunity to, it would almost seem like there would have to be a mechanism to help introduce genetic variation in those examples. I mean, does that make sense? Yes, completely. So I think it's in rotifers, which are these, you know, uh, microorganisms, I think they see more lateral gene transfer in asexual populations and sexual populations. So it all fits quite nicely together. Exactly. You need to you need to introduce diversity from somewhere. And is there any evidence of chloroplast genes being transferred or are these all nuclear? So the genes that we look at are all nuclear, but yes, a lot of the original work came from implants. We're looking at mitochondrial and chloroplast genes. So I think it's in Amborella, um, is one of the, the species of plants, which is, is acts as a sponge and absorbs um, organelle genomes from, from many species. So it is it does happen in, in, in the, the organelles as well as the nuclear. Yeah, we're going to have a guest on in a few weeks about kleptoplasty. Okay, sea slugs. <laughs> yeah, we're going to talk about sea slugs and how they borrow chloroplasts from plants. Pretty yeah, cool. that's super cool. Yeah. I, I love that story, but that, that's uh, but similar, you know, idea. Instead of just transferring a gene laterally, you do a whole, whole organelle and you put it to work. <laughs> I, I mean, exactly. This is you know some of the, the skepticism around eukaryote lateral gene transfer in general. I also found quite surprising because yes, we know that we basically eukaryotes acquired chloroplasts and mitochondria. You know, we know it happened at some point. So when you look across um, plants in general, how big of a role do you think that lateral gene transfer has had in evolution and adaptation? So, I mean, it's not time to get rid of Darwin. Descent with modification is still, you know, the overarching driver of evolution and adaptation. But we've definitely moved from a starting point of it doesn't really happen to, oh, it does have some remarkable effects in certain groups. And it's quite interesting that the potentially lateral gene transfer plays a role in sort of major evolutionary transitions that we see. So I mentioned the acquisition of the organelles during early eukaryote um, origins. But then there's also been work that suggested that lateral gene transfer might be associated with the colonization of, of the land by plants. I mentioned earlier the, the ability of ferns to grow in low light environments thanks to a neochrome. So they, that's a new niche which has been opened up. And red, red algae, which have acquired the new biochemical pathways, allowing them to detoxify heavy metals and thrive in inhospitable environments. So it can have some remarkable and, and profound effects. But where it stands and how common it is, this is something we still don't really know. We know in the grasses, for example, it occurs in 13 out of 17 grass species, but we don't 
have a handle on how this has really affected their evolution. Yeah, this is something which is, we'll be building a picture as, as more and more people investigate lateral gene transfer as, as more genomic data becomes available. Well, I think about this question, you know, especially with respect to your career and, you know, really getting started in your own program, um, that you kind of hit the pinata here. And, and do you imagine that this will be something that now that we're looking for it, we'll be able to determine either through better software or whatever, that there will be ways to really look at this in a much wider range and probably find examples of this everywhere? Yeah, I completely, completely think so. So a lot, a lot of the, the way that we've been doing the analysis so far is quite um, conservative because of some of the skepticism around it. So we've been, you know, very thorough with the phylogenies we built. And, but this generally means we're sort of restricted, for example, to genes which you can build a robust phylogeny across the grasses. So, we, so it has to be there already in every, in every species, whereas some of the genes which will be most interesting are the ones which have, you know, de novo formed in one species for a new trait, and then that's been moved to a different species. So I think as we start to appreciate the process and develop new methods to start identifying it in, in, in a broader range of taxa and, and cases, I think we'll find that it does have a, a, a larger role than we appreciate. Yeah, it almost seems like you could start to do this backwards too, that you could take more simpler genomes or more ancient genomes and run them backwards, you know, the, each individual against the newer. Well, I mean, it seems like you could do this in both directions and maybe find examples. Your paper looked at grasses. Do you think that this is something that will be equally widespread when you start looking in dicots and other lineages? Yeah, so we focus on grasses because it's one of the easiest groups to do it in because of you know, the importance, both agriculturally and, and environmentally, there's many genomes available. So you have that sampling, which allows you to um, dissect the, 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 the history of the genes. Whether it's going to be as important in other species of plants I, uh, and other clades, I would, I would say probably it's likely, you know, I mean, once people start looking, maybe they will find it's 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 as as common in grasses, or could even be more common. For example, you know, you talk about um, dicots there. So, getting into the meristem, if you can get laterally acquired DNA into the meristem, it will be passed to into the germline. So, having lateral meristems as you have in dicots might mean that you you're more likely to retain the genes, or or it could simply be a numbers game, you know, potentially it is a really rare process and you just have to have more individuals. And so grasses are probably the most abundant um, group of plants. So maybe there is more for, for that reason. But this is something we really haven't got a handle at. And, and our current work is actually taking the, this, this approach beyond grasses. And so we can start to compare with other groups. And so one of the ones we're going to start looking at next will be probably the brassicas, because again, due to crops and, and, and their importance, there's lots of genomes in, in that group. Yeah, I think there's a lot of interesting ones to think about. And we think about strawberries. This is one I used to work on a lot. And they they have many populations that are homogenous that appear to spread more um, asexually than sexually necessarily. Because there's a strong inbreeding depression with strawberries. And uh, and they do spread by, by stolons. And there have been so many reports over the years that I recall from conferences that they say, well, there's the, the microRNAs don't exactly match between the child, or between the offspring and the parent, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, it yeah. gives you the idea that maybe there is some more interesting thing going on if we could sequence more genomes. But I guess that remains to be seen. Um, I guess the thing that I where I really caught wind of the work 
was not by reading new phytologists, but on, was on Twitter, <laughs> um, that bastion of academic knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the, your paper got a lot of attention by folks saying, well, here's another example of nature's GMOs, you know, that here's an example of how nature is, is introducing genes in random and unpredictable ways. And do you think that the findings in this kind of work really do change the conversation around genetic engineering? Um, and honestly, I don't really think it will. I think you can take the results of this research in sort of two ways. And I think it really relies on your preconceptions already around the GM debate. Because yes, you could say that we see natural GM, GMOs in, in, in grasses. So it's a more of a natural process. So let's, let's start doing it more ourselves. But alternatively, you, a, a skeptic might say that, well, if we see grasses, uh, trading genes across the grass family, potentially that means that any gene introduced to a grass could could escape. So whilst we were really worried about that to to close relatives, it could happen to any grass. So I think, unfortunately, whether it be about um, vaccinations or climate change or GMOs, people seem to have a somewhat reluctant um, stance to change their opinions nowadays. And I, I think they, that this research won't help. I kind of agree with you. I mean, I've I've been in that discussion for 20 years and trying to help shape public opinion on on issues around around science of, you know, genetic engineering, vaccination, that kind of thing. And it seems that the the opinions are not based on the science. They don't really no. care about gene transfer. It's more about uh, who's doing the gene transfer. And if nature does it, not such a big deal. But yeah. if, if uh, a guy in a lab coat with a m on it uh does it then you know then uh then you're in big trouble <laughs> yeah so for example a lot since this there's been a lot of discussion about i i you know say effectively it could be equivalent um and a lot of people are like no it's all about intent and and that's really more of a philosophical philosophical debate really so um yeah exactly people have made their decisions and, and i'm not sure um anything you can do to change their mind there have been many examples of lateral gene transfer that have been discussed over the years, but what are some of your favorites? So I think my top three, if I had to go, would probably be um, aphids that can synthesize red fungal pigments. So these have acquired this, is this pathway from um, an endosymbiont and it allows them to, to take on this red color, which allows them to avoid predation when, they are, when they're on certain parts of, of, of the plant. You've got mushrooms that have shared the, the, the recipe or the genetic instructions to assemble psychoactive compounds. And most recently, is uh, there was a study in whiteflies that have acquired genes which enable them to um, turn the host plants defenses against them. So it helps them with, with herbivory. So that, these are just three fascinating examples, but there's, there's a whole multitude um, which get released every, every year. The work that you've done really is in grass, but grass isn't just one thing. I mean, it's a really diverse family of plants. And so give me a little sense of the breadth of organisms that you can interrogate to ask these questions. So, so grasses, yes, I mean, they are extremely diverse. There's about 12,000 species, and they've been evolving for about 50 million years. And so when we look at the transfers, we see transfers across the whole family. And this is a akin to the distance between rice and maize. So they're extremely divergent species. So, I mean, they are one of the best study systems because the crops are also represented across the grass family. They're not just restricted to one or two clades. So we have this sampling and, it, and it's sort of unparalleled really at the moment 
in, in plants and you, and you will struggle at present to find a, a better representative plane. But this is changing all the time, as you know, genome sequencing is cheaper, uh, computing is better, um, and it, hopefully in the future we'll be, be able to do similar analysis in, in, in all sorts of all right, Dr. Luke Dunning, so if people want to follow you on social media and read more about the discoveries that happened through your program, where do they follow you? So on Twitter, it's at Luke T. Dunning. Okay, at Luke T. Dunning, and I'll include the link there as well as the link to the laboratory in the show notes. So thank you very much for joining me, and you know, I hope as things go forward, if you find anything really, I shouldn't say if, I should say when you find your next big discovery, <laughs> give us a holler and we'll talk about it again, okay? Thank you very much for joining me. Perfect. Thank you very much for having me. And as always, thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Uh, thank you for writing your reviews. Thank you for your kind words. Thank you for the emails and other thoughts. Uh, we're getting a larger and larger audience every week as we begin to enter the seventh year of the podcast. So this is really great. Uh, no intention of slowing down and better guests every week. So thank you very much for listening and we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are. But it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast. Which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort. Recommend guests. And support us if it's a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.